You'll just be prepared to flip through these few chapters in Acts. A gentleman by the name of Gus Lee wrote a book titled Courage. And on the book's cover is a spine. So you get the idea, you know, you're trying to give somebody a spine, trying to give somebody a backbone. And he defines courage this way. The backbone needed at the point of decision. Courage is the backbone needed at the point of decision. Like I said, you all come to millions of opportunities or hundreds of opportunities, some some point of decision. And and right at that point, what's required is a spine, a backbone to 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 move forward, maybe to move away from, to embrace something, to say yes, to to maybe say no, whatever that is, you need that moment requires courage. And all of us over the course of the year will have many opportunities to have these points of decisions. They may be very large. They may be very small. And, and you will at that moment when somebody asks you to do something, when you when you read something, you sense God calling you to be involved at that particular moment, they'll be required of you to act courageously. It might be to step up or to show up. It might be to say yes or no. It might be to embrace or walk away from it. It might be the courage to confess. It might be the courage to forgive. It might be the courage to grow or to be strengthened or be confronted. It might be the courage to start something new. It could be the courage to finally stop something old. The courage to stand up. The courage to lay down your life. And the Bible is packed with these moments, these points of decision that are all through the Bible. And they're there for lots of different reasons. But one of the primary reasons these are recorded for us in the Bible is to show us the courage that these ordinary men and women had and displayed. Because now it's our turn to stand up and say, yes, I can Act in this way. I can act courageously because I'm recalling, I'm remembering, I'm being strengthened by these acts of people who have gone before me. And you're familiar with the stories. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua, as you know, assumed the leadership for Moses. He's going to be the general of this ragtag army that's going to move across the Jordan and give birth to the nation of Israel. And when you open Joshua chapter one, basically what you have is God giving Joshua this pregame pep talk. And he's saying, "Okay, Joshua, this is the time we're just about ready to hit the field. And I can tell because I'm looking in your eyes, you're awfully nervous. And so I'm going to come in here and I'm going to give you this pep talk. And you see in four verses or three times in four verses, he has this repetitive statement, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid to take a stand, Joshua. Here's Joshua. He's seen all these tremendous things. He's seen all these ways God's work, but Moses is off the scene and now it's his time. And it was so much easier to stand next to Moses and watch it happen. But now when it's his time to stand by himself, guess what? Knees start to buckle. Noodle infects the spine and God sees it happening and he comes in and says, hey, I need a pep talk with my main man, Joshua. Be strong, be of great courage. Don't be afraid to take a stand. Jeremiah chapter one. 
Joshua saw the birth of Israel. Jeremiah lived at the other end of the spectrum. He saw the death of Israel. And Jeremiah is going to be this one last preacher. And God informs him that, you know, Jeremiah, you're not going to pastor a mega church. Most of your congregation will never like any of your sermons. But, I, but I'm sending you in to this last moment to, to speak for me. And he can see that Jeremiah is afraid. And so in chapter 1, again, God comes in and the Lord says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, do not say, I am only a child. Don't say that you're too young. You're not too young. You must go to every everyone I send you and you must say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them. For I am with you. I will rescue you. Get yourself ready. Stand up. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, don't be terrified. Queen Esther follows Jeremiah. The the people of God are in exile now. And so the Jewish people are dispersed into a number of different places, but particularly into Babylon or Persia. And Queen Esther was a woman who had been dispersed, and now she has, through these odd circumstances, become the queen to the king. And you read this very unusual story in the Old Testament that a Jewish man uncovered a plot. This man's name was Mordecai. And he uncovered this plot that the Jews were going to be eliminated. They were going to be Extinct. There was going to be this big plan of genocide. And so Mordecai happens to be related to Esther and he uncovers the plot and he goes to the gate and he gets a messenger who can go to the queen. And he says, hey, you've got to give Queen Esther this message. You've got to tell her she's got to take her stand right now. She's got to go before the king and she's got to say what's happening and she's got to get the king to change his mind, to do something different. And so the messenger goes to, to Esther and says, hey, your uncle's out at the gate. This is what he says. And Esther says to the messenger, tell my uncle, if I go before the king, if I stand up, if I have a backbone, it might cost me my life. And I'm just not sure I can do that. So the messenger comes back and comes back to Mordecai. And Mordecai says to Esther, very famous line, you know it. Who, who knows that, that you've risen to this particular place, this moment to stand for such a time as this? Who knows that God might, might not have been orchestrating your entire life as weird as your circumstances have been, that he's placed you right now in this one moment. This is the moment. There's not going to be another moment, Esther. You've got to stand. And that might be the case for you. It is the case for you at some level. This is the moment. This is your place. This is the time to Take a stand. Paul in Second Timothy is he's dying and he's leaving this last letter to Timothy. Who's his disciple and Timothy is going to pastor a church in one of the most strategic and influential, influential churches in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus. And he understands that Timothy 
is known to be fearful. So he's in this letter in his opening chapter. He's he's exhorting Timothy, who's now was standing with uh, the Apostle Paul, like Joshua was standing with Moses. But Moses is off the scene. Joshua has to stand by himself. Paul is going off the scene. Timothy's going to have to stand in this very strategic, very pagan city. He's going to have to stand by himself. And he says, I'm fanning into flame the gift that God has given you. For God has given you, Timothy, a spirit, not of fear, but of power. And I, I just... The, the, uh, the, the bellows or the blanket that Paul is pulling out in this letter, and he's just trying to fan this little ember that's trembling that might go out, and he sees it. He's, he's coming along as a disciple. He said, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to fan this into flame. I, I realize you, you might be overcome by your own people in your own church. You might be overcome by your culture. And, and I, I want you, Timothy, I want you to stand up. You have a gift. Not everyone has your gift. And because you have the gift and you've been placed in this particular point, I'm coming along and saying, I'm fanning this into flame. You must take your stand right now. Do not allow your church, do not allow your culture, do not allow your fear to overcome you. And you waste or you hide your talent. This is the moment. You are the man. And I'm trying to fan that into flame. In Hebrews chapter 11 is the Hall of Fame. It's known as the Hall of Fame of the Old Testament. If you got your name in Hebrews chapter 11, I guess you were somebody in the Old Testament. Of course, they're all dead, so they wouldn't have known about it anyway. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, David. The writer of Hebrews says, What more shall I say these people? Through faith, they conquered kingdoms, they administered justice, they gained what was promised, they shut the mouths of lions, they quenched the fury of the flames, they escaped the edge of the sword, their weaknesses, was turned, their weaknesses were turned to strength, they became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And when you read it, you just want to go, yeah, sign me up, I want to stand, I want to have courage, I'm, put me on the team. Except for there's a comma. There. I mean, that did happen, but but the writer says, yeah, but there's some other folks. And if you want to stand, you got to know that some were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging. Others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They were destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Not as many hands now. You see, the courage to take a stand might cause you to be stoned. We understand there's a, a big risk in having the kind of courage that we're talking about. It doesn't always turn out well in this life for you. That's not promised. Well, this brings us to our text this morning. Three very prominent speeches in the book of Acts. Three 
particular events where the, the writer, Luke, recorded this entire sermon. There are lots of sermons that he could have recorded. These are the big ones that he's recorded. And, and at this partic- these particular moments, uh, a person, Peter, Stephen, Paul, they have to stand up. They have to be men of great courage. In Acts chapter 2, it's a very unusual event. If you look at it, it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, remember, had instructed his disciples and said, you guys stay in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's coming in this very unique and powerful way. You need to stay there until it happens. And so it happens in these opening verses of chapter 2. And what this coming of the Holy Spirit enabled these disciples to do is to speak in tongues so they could speak another known language, not known to them, but suddenly they could speak another language fluently. And as they were speaking this language, there were people from all kinds of places around the globe there saying, hey, this guy's speaking my language. I know he's not from my hometown, but he can tell me about the gospel in my own language. And you can read that in the, uh, the verses 9 through uh, 13. And then we get to this uh, not surprising point. If you're sort of just standing on the periphery and you see this happening, what might you think? Well, you're going to at least think this is very bizarre. And maybe you'll say, hey, I'm overwhelmed by it and you're intrigued by it. Or you could just go, that's, that's nutty. I mean, I think those people are drunk. And that's what some people said. And then I want you to look with me in chapter 2, verse 14. Here, here's the point of decision. Here's the moment. How are the disciples going to respond? But Peter, comma, standing with the eleven, comma, what a long comma. Here he, here's Peter. He's standing with the eleven. So they're all standing there and people are mocking them. Now, just a few days before, when Peter and the eleven were standing up and someone was mocking them, they didn't look too good, did they? They didn't perform too well at that point. When Jesus was being mocked, when they were being mocked, what happened to, to Peter and the eleven? They all ran away. So here's the next moment. Here's, here's the next point. And Luke draws you in. Peter, standing with the eleven, comma, what are they going to do? Are they going to have a backbone at this particular moment? Or are all, they all going to go, ah, and run away? Well, you get your answer. Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known and give ear to my words. And he delivers this very powerful sermon. And I wonder just what what was the tone at that point? You know, you can't get it in reading. But what was what was Peter like at that particular point? And I could just only guess to think that, you know, there was that moment Okay, am I going to step forward? There's a big risk here. And, and once he does and he begins to lift his voice, I just would imagine as a, as a preacher, he's just getting more and more bold, more and more powerful, just saying, I'm not going to let this moment slip away. I do remember when I didn't have a backbone. 
And I do remember walking away. I'm not going to allow it to be this moment. I'm going to finally take my stand no matter what it costs. And then we look at the end of the chapter. Turn with me at the end of your chapter. You see the result of this sermon. Verse 37, chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they, all these people that had been gathered around, heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. What a great outcome. I'm waiting on this moment for myself. I say it, I say it with meaning and power and 3000 people come forward. And not only do they come forward, then they're, they're dedicated to understanding what the apostles are teaching about Jesus from the Bible. This is, this is the pinnacle moment if you're a preacher. And Peter took his stand with the eleven and he got to see some miraculous events happen right here at the beginning of the early church. But, but we know it doesn't always work out that way. Acts chapter 7, Stephen. The, the church was growing. There's a lot of powerful things that are happening in these opening weeks and months of the church. And as you might imagine, as the church grew, it threatened the power structures that were already in place. And so the people in power, the chief priest, were sensing a loss of control. And so they in order to try to put a, a dampening down on this new movement, they get one of the main speakers, Stephen, and say, if we can discredit him, maybe we can discredit the whole movement. And so they bring Stephen up on these false charges. And the high priest looks at Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1. Are these things so? See, here's the point of decision. Here's the moment. Stephen standing by himself. Stephen, you've heard the accusations. Is this so? And what will Stephen do? Well, Stephen takes a stand. He delivers a very powerful sermon, much like Peter's. And then if you turn with me to the end of the chapter, verse 51, 50 and 51, you'll see Stephen has this tough conclusion. 51, you stiff-necked people. This is a tough, tough closing line if you're giving a sermon. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resisted the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers did not did your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have betrayed and you murdered. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They looked at Stephen and said, what should we do? That's not what it says. I mean, that's what I'm anticipating. That's what happened with Peter. Same tough sermon. He stood up. He made his case. 
Certainly the Lord was pleased. It's just going to rain back down 3,000 people. But what happens? These people were enraged. As a crowd, they rushed towards Stephen. They drug him out of the city and they stoned him. You see, sometimes when you take a stand for your faith, you see salvation. Sometimes when you take a stand, you get stoned. And who receives which one? That's in God's hands alone. One last example, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26. Paul, like Stephen, had been falsely accused. They were trying to put a mark against him on his reputation so people would not listen to him. So he's falsely accused by some uh, chief priests and he's imprisoned. But to the Roman officials, Paul's a zero. They don't care about Paul. They don't even know much about Paul. And so he spends two years in this prison basically trying to get a hearing And he can't seem to get a hearing until finally he catches his break in Acts chapter 26. Uh, In town is going to be the king, Agrippa, and his sister, Bernice. And so he's going to be given this chance now to present his case. You'll see this in uh, chapter 25, verse uh, 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, who is the governor at that location, Paul was brought in. You see, you get the picture of what's happening here. The the king's in town. He's brought his sister, Bernice, who he's probably having an affair with. The governor, the local governor, Festus, he's there. The military top brass, they're there. And then the prominent men of the city. And they're in a hall of some kind. And the last people in the hall are the king and his sister. And they come up and they take their seats and everybody's hushed silence. All the prominent people are there. And then finally, Festus, the governor, says, hey, let's go ahead and bring in Paul. So Paul walks in, prisoner, nobody, unattractive, not a great speaker. And King Agrippa says, okay, Paul, chapter 26, you have permission to speak for yourself. And what's Paul going to do? I Means he's going to buckle underneath this pressure. This, these are the most important, powerful people of his generation. Or is he going to take his stand? Well, Paul takes his stand. He stretches out his hand. And he delivers this very powerful speech. And if you look down to verse 22, 23, Paul is is sort of in his closing argument. And Festus, the governor, he can't sit in his seat any longer. I mean, he's been itching the whole time to get rid of Paul, and he just tired of Paul's speech. And he stands up and says, Paul, you're a maniac. That's what he says. You are out of your mind. In the Greek, that's maniac. You're a fool. We are done listening to your stupid rhetoric. And he just cut Paul off. That's the end of it. Paul has to stay in prison. He ends up getting shipped off to Rome. You see, you see what's happening here? Each of these men in different situations have to take a stand. It's a point of decision. They have to have courage. 
But be clear about the consequences of doing that. Some people will see salvation. Some people will get stoned. And some people will look at you and say, you're stupid. You're a maniac. That will happen if you take a stand. At the end of the book of Acts, it ends in sort of an odd way. Acts chapter 28. Paul's in Rome and he's just ministering to people. And then it sort of ends. Paul ministers to people, period. You're like, that's weird. And I think it's Luke's way of saying, well, that's just sort of the end of volume one of church history. I mean, I'm, I'm just closing it out right now. Paul was ministering to people in Rome. But he, he puts a comma, he does it, but he would put a comma there saying, and more church history is going to be written. I've, I've compiled 28 chapters of sort of back-to-back stories of men and women who have stood up and, and been courageous. But I want you to know as the writer, Luke is saying, it's, it's soon going to be your turn. These people mostly have passed off the scene. And now church history is going to march on until Jesus comes back. And until, until he comes back, it's going to be your moment to take your stand. You're going to have your points of decision. And, of course, if you read church history, you just read one story after another of men and women taking their stand. One of the disciples of the Apostle John probably around the year 100. His name was Polycarp. A very powerful Christian influence of his day. And he was arrested when he was 86 years old for preaching the gospel. And so he's brought to this stadium. And in order to get out of being mauled by a bear or beaten by a gladiator or burned at the stake, you had to say, Caesar is Lord. I'm denying Jesus is the Lord. I'm proclaiming that Caesar is the Lord. So they bring this 86-year-old man into the stadium. And the guy who's sort of running the affairs of the stadium, there's thousands of people crowded around watching this as sort of an entertainment. He feels a little bit sorry for this 86-year-old man. He says, come on, dude. I mean, just say it. Then you can walk out. I don't want to kill an old man. I mean, there's nothing really very much fun about that. And he looks at Polycarp and he says, here's what you need to do. Just turn to your little huddled group of nobody Christians over here who are all going to be eaten by a lion pretty soon anyway. And just say, you're an atheist. And Caesar really is Lord. And if you just say it, you get to walk out. And Polycarp looks at the official and then he raises his hand. He looks at the stadium and he says, these people are atheists. Well, that doesn't go over too well. He says, I'll burn you at the stake. And he says, then let's go ahead and bring the fire. And Polycarp is burned at the stake. See, an 86-year-old man has to take a stand. And his courage then actually lit a fire under hundreds of thousands of Christians to take a stand after him. Several hundred years later, a guy named Boniface, he was known as the greatest missionary of the Dark Ages. He spent most of his time, he was from England, but he spent most of his time in in Germany. 
And at that particular point, there was a lot of spirit worship. And in this particular location, they believed in the thunder god, which might have been Thor. I don't know. But somehow there was a, a sacred oak tree. And they thought the thunder god, this was like their his home or something sacred about this tree. And so nobody touched the tree. They came and worshipped at the tree. And Boniface finally got fed up with it. And so he got gathered all the locals around and said, come meet me at this tree at noon, whatever time it was. So they all gather around and Boniface says, you know what? There is no thunder god. There is only one real god. And he starts chopping down the tree. To the horror of everybody around And they thought, okay, the thunder God is going to come down right now on Boniface. And they waited, and they waited, and they're still waiting. And when they realized, well, if there is a thunder God, the God this guy's talking about is more powerful than him. So let's listen. And a few years later, on that same location, Boniface built a chapel. And many people came to Christ. A few hundred years later, Martin Luther, in a very similar situation of Acts chapter 26 with Paul, he has to stand up in front of all of the power structures of his day. And everybody's there. Great pomp, great circumstance. And they bring in this little monk. And nobody really cares too much about other than he's creating some fears and frustrations for people. And he's saying, look, Luther, it's time for you to just recant. Tell everybody you really don't believe the stuff that you've been writing. And Luther looks at all of these people and says very famously, unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, and distinct grounds and reasoning, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. His standing is the reason I'm standing here today. A few hundred years later, last story, Gladys Aylward grew up in England, but she had a passion for China. In 1930, she applied to the China Inland Mission to be a part of the missionary endeavor, but she was not, she was academically unchallenged. She's a poor student. She never did well in school, and so they rejected Gladys to go on the mission field. But what Gladys lacked in uh, education, she made up in determination. So she worked for two years. Enough just to buy a ticket, a one-way ticket from London to China. She was going to go work with an aging missionary woman there. And she has one of the most fascinating stories, you should read it sometime, about the things God called her to do. But Gladys Aylward always lived with this sense of maybe a woman shouldn't be in this particular spot. Maybe, Maybe God would have looked and called for somebody else. Maybe I wasn't the right person for some of the tasks that she got assigned. She was at one point called in to go into a male prison and put down a riot. In an interview in her last few days, she said this, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done for China. 
there was somebody else. I don't know who it was, God's first choice. It must have been a wonderful, well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. Whatever the reason, when God looked down, he did see Gladys Elward. She died, I think, in 1970. So now it's your turn. I don't think Jesus has come back yet. I hope not. Because I missed it. You did too. Until he does, chapters are still being written. It's by ordinary people. By ordinary pastors, by ordinary churches who are willing to take a little step and take a stand. And I don't know how God might stir you up. It might be in a neighbor. It might be at the Yahweh Center or Mary C. Williams. It might be at Lifeline. It might be be with university students. It might be with your spouse or a friend. It might be saying yes to something that somebody's been asking you to do. Or it might just be saying no to something. You say, I, I just need to tell my friend, I, I don't do that anymore. I don't know where your point of decision is. It's a big decision for you. And I'm trusting that God is going to use these stories, these passages, the things that we're going to talk about to, to cause you to Take that step of courage and step into what he wants you to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you use the word of God and the people of God to transform people's lives. And so we've had a chance this morning to hear from you and to be amazed at very ordinary people willing to take a stand. And I think many of us might think, oh, there's just there's got to be somebody else. There's got to be somebody else more qualified. And, and you're looking down and saying, no, you're it. You're the, the ninth grader I want to use in this school this year. You're the college student on this in this dormitory hall that I want to use this year. You're the neighbor that I want to use. You're the coworker. I want to use this this little church in this little town in Wilmington. You're the ones I'm choosing to use. And there's going to be a need for courage. And God, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would help each and every one of us here. To, to take our stand wherever you call us in Jesus name. Amen.